informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. Well, hello, and thank you for joining us here today for another episode of Agriculture of America, AOA. Great to have you along for the ride. The coffee cup is full, and we're looking forward to great conversations here today on the program. I'm your host, Jesse Allen. Coming up in just a moment, we're going to talk markets with Naomi Bloom from Total Farm Marketing. In segment two, we'll have a conversation with the new chair of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, Alex Peterson from Missouri. Looking forward to uh, talking with him. He was recently at COP28 over in Dubai. I know we're going to touch on that, some of his priorities as chair of the U.S. Dairy Export Council and more. That's coming up in segment two today. Then in segment three, I'm going to take a look at the fertilizer markets with Josh Linville from Stone X. We uh, just yesterday got news of a big acquisition. From, uh, Coke is going to buy OCI's Iowa nitrogen plant in southeast Iowa for $3.6 billion. What are the implications of that on the market potentially? I know that's something that we're going to talk to Josh about coming up here after the bottom of the hour today. Then we'll have a look at news headlines as well later in the show. So a lot to get to here on AOA. Let's kick things off with a look at the markets. Naomi Bloom with Total Farm Marketing is back with us here on the program. Naomi, thanks so much for joining us. I hope you're doing well. I hope the same as well for you too. Well, thank you. And uh, getting ready for the uh, holiday season, of course. Uh, Hard to believe we're already at the end of the year. And, you know, when we get to the end of the year, typically, Naomi, these markets kind of enter that holiday malaise mode. They get to be kind of thin. There's not a lot of traders uh, in the markets, and it can lead to some moves. And it's looking like, uh, in the case of soybeans here on this uh, Tuesday, it's all about South American weather. Again, watching to see if those rains verify and maybe taking a little profit here after Monday's moves. What's your thoughts in the soybean trade right now? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, yesterday we were up um, just on concerns that the rain over the weekend in Brazil weren't enough to really fix the crop and the drought conditions that are there. And now today we've got better chances of rain coming up for the Christmas weekend. So what's going to be really challenging for for farmers is, of course, we have to enjoy the Christmas holiday weekend, but keep an eye on the weather in Brazil, keep an eye on the global news. And then with the three-day markets, uh, markets being closed Monday, we don't trade it until Tuesday morning at 8.30. So that could really lead to some extra market volatility, especially as you said, with um, volume potentially being lighter. There's just a lot that can roil this market right now, and volatility is expected actually on lighter trade, or if there's any um, you know, glimmers of big news that should occur over the next few days, that'll get traded into the market as well. Oh, I know we did get a export sales announcement Tuesday morning of soybeans to unknown destinations. Uh, one could assume that is maybe China. I know some folks are still looking. I know soybean exports have been all right, uh, but some folks are still looking for China to continue to step back into this U.S. soybean market. Uh, one has to wonder if we could see some of that here before the end of the year, Naomi. Yeah, that'll be something to be watching those daily export sales Um, You know, at the end of the day, China is going to need to import um, plenty of beans, and they rely, of course, on Brazil for more of it and and South America. 
but they still need to buy from us. And the fact that the, there's threat that that Brazil crop isn't perfect and ours is still reasonably priced and competitive to the world makes me think that they're going to be interested in our product. And I think the other thing with the markets concerned about all of the uh, transportation hiccups happening globally, the good news is that the PNW is still open. So that's good news for farmers in North Dakota, South Dakota. Maybe their beans are going to be wanted because they at least can get railed west and go out the PNW to China uh, without all of the extra scuttlebutt that's happening around the world with transportation. Yeah, good point there with the low water levels on the Panama Canal, the issues in the Red Sea, something to keep an eye on. Over in this corn market, it's pretty quiet, really lacking a fresh story, it seems like. I did notice uh, open interest jumped uh, by managed money on Monday. Are, are funds getting short even more in this core market right now, Naomi? Well, they had actually been um, kind of reducing the amount of short positions they have had very slowly, um, but they're not um, exiting those short positions with gusto by any means. And on the most um, recent... Um, commitment of traders report we saw the managers of fund money had bought back 9,000 contracts of corn and had really started to kind of just slowly reduce their short position, I think, putting profits on the books into the end of the year, along with concerns that the second crop corn in Brazil, which of course not even going to get planted until late February or March, but that might be in jeopardy. So um, I'm very curious to see if we see China come in and do some buying. I am very mindful of how China did not have wonderful weather this summer, and that was evident by China needing to come in and buy U.S. wheat to help with their blending. So I'm watching to see if they do any sorghum purchases, any corn purchases, and maybe a good time to do that was when the market would be um, thoughtfully sleepy with the holidays, and so there, China maybe comes in and says, hey, no one's watching, let's, let's do some corn purchases now, especially with corn just trading near lower price levels overall. Um, but one thing I wanted to point out with corn, actually two things, from a seasonal perspective, there is a tendency for corn prices to work higher into January, uh, so the last week here of December and into early January, maybe we see uh, some kind of a push higher from a seasonal perspective. We need some news to make it happen. But then if you're a person who looks at charts, if you're looking at continuous weekly front month charts of corn and even the continuous weekly second month front month chart of corn, both have put in bottoming signals on weekly charts, two consistent bottoming signals. So there's, there's some hope there from a technical perspective, from a seasonal perspective. And with the weather in South America not being perfect, maybe from a fundamental perspective as well, but we need some really legitimate bullish news to get this market to pop because otherwise it feels like trade is just focusing on that 2 billion bushel carryout number, uh, which is kind of just weighing on the market overall right now. So again, lots of things to be monitoring, um, plenty of things to be talking about in the coming weeks, and then we'll flip the calendar and already be looking at that big January USDA report. Uh, which they can change any and everything on it. So you've got to be ready for anything that comes at us. Definitely. Naomi, we have about a minute. Should folks, uh, I would think, be on their toes here the next couple of weeks as we get ready to roll that calendar to 2024 and uh, have their marketing plan kind of fleshed out a little bit and be up to date here as we head into next year? Yeah, I would. And I would say with with all honesty, if we can see any kind of a rally higher into the new year and into January, 
um, that would be a really good opportunity for farmers to be making cash sales for old crop corn, new crop corn, and even on the bean sector. Um, because for prices to go anywhere sky high, it would take a dramatic influx of demand or something very, very wrong to happen with that Brazil crop. So um, use it, any kind of a rally to your advantage, pull the trigger, make the sales. Well, I know folks can reach out to you and the team there at Total Farm Marketing for advice and questions, totalfarmmarketing.com, or give you a call, 800-334-9779. Naomi, thanks for joining us on AOA. I wish you and yours a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, and we will talk to you again real soon. Thanks so much. Thank you. Naomi Bloom there with Total Farm Marketing joining us here today on AOA. All right, coming up next, we are going to have a conversation with the new chair of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, Alex Peterson. He'll join us after this as we're back with more AOA right after the break. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership. Every week, we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative. And we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. Tune in each Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Join us the first Wednesday of every month on AOA for the latest episode of The Monthly Grind with our friends at the National Corn Growers Association. We'll discuss the latest topics surrounding the corn industry, the relationships between corn and other parts of the agricultural supply chain, the newest initiatives and partnerships from NCGA's Market Development Action Team, and much more. That's the first Wednesday of every month for The Monthly Grind on AOA. It's a show you don't want to miss. Paid non-attorney spokesperson. Are you over the age of 60 and been diagnosed with lung cancer? If so, you and your family may qualify for a cash award. Our experienced attorneys are standing by to evaluate whether you have a lung cancer claim that qualifies you for a cash award. The consultation is absolutely free and there is no risk and no money out of pocket. We only receive a fee when we secure you and your family a settlement. 250,000 people are diagnosed with lung cancer every year. You're not alone in this battle. We can help make sure that you and your family are financially safe and that medical expenses are covered. Again, if you've been diagnosed with lung cancer and are over age 60, call now. Don't delay. There are deadlines for filing claims. We're standing by 24-7. Call us at 1-844-903-1744. 1-844-903-1744. That's 1-844-903-1744. Attorney Advertising. William Stephacker Jr. is the attorney responsible for this ad. Main office, Grant, Pennsylvania. May not be available in all states. Now. We tend not to think about now. We dream about tomorrow, relive yesterday. But sometimes we don't see what's right in front of us. Victory over cancer is in front of us. Right now, cancer research is saving lives. Cancer research funded by the V Foundation is leading to new discoveries and new treatments and ultimately, one day, victory over cancer. Give to the V Foundation. Right now, one out of every two men and one out of every three women will get cancer in their lifetime. Now is your moment. You may save someone you love. 
100% of your donation goes directly to game-changing research. 100%. Donate at V.org. Because today's cancer research is tomorrow's victory. Don't give up. Don't ever give up. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. All right, now let's turn our attention over to the dairy parlor. We have a lot of topics to discuss, including uh, dairy's role at COP28 here just a few weeks ago in Dubai. Looking at exports as we wrap up the year, the uh, USMCA ruling on Canada's TRQs. There's a lot to get to in our conversation here today on the program with the new chair of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, Alex Peterson from Missouri. Alex, great to have you uh, back on the program and congratulations on being the named as the new chair of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jesse. Great to be with you. Well, let's uh, first uh, dive in and talk about you being named as a new chair. I know you had the interim tag here for a little while, and uh, we've taken that off now, and you are officially uh, leading the organization, and I'm sure you have to be excited and a lot of of different things on on your bucket list, I would think, as we uh, move forward into 2024. Talk about uh, what's on the horizon for you as chair of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. Well, I think uh, what's critical is that we continue to build opportunities and markets around the world for U.S. dairy products. And I think my job as chair is really just to to make sure all the the trains are running on time. We have good communication with the processors and people actually selling dairy products around the world and that we continue to make it as easy as possible as we can for that. And a lot of that is uh, short-term issues as far as garnering market access, uh, troubleshooting when problems arise, uh, some strategic uh, advice and and data that we have, but also uh, middle and long term. You know, middle to long term, those are are plays that probably fits um, really squarely on checkoff and U.S. deck on building these opportunities that aren't just you know this quarter this year, but uh, five, ten, fifteen years down the road. And I, I know you kind of teed up COP, and that really is where COP 28 fits. Uh, into this whole narrative. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. I know, uh, obviously, a lot of headlines came out of COP28 here over in Dubai, and you spent uh, uh, quite a bit of time over there. I know agriculture worldwide was front and center for uh, a lot of discussions there. So talk about your your time and some of the highlights from COP28. Yeah, COP is, it's a little different year to year. I think uh, in the Emirates, it was the biggest one ever, like 100,000 participants. Uh, So there is a risk of getting lost in the crowd. But uh, what was evident was that agriculture was there in a big way, which traditionally hadn't always been the case. And agriculture has worked hard uh, the last several years to make sure that uh, we are a part of the conversation. And so we do that with some of our our partners, like IECA, which is the Inter-American Institute for Cooperation on Agriculture, which is based out of Costa Rica, but serves agriculture across the Americas, uh, and then the International Chamber of Commerce. And those uh, both pavilions gave us platforms to, to communicate with uh, the ag community that was there, but also uh, stretching our tentacles into, into the greater COP28 discussion. And you just uh, kind of bump people here and there, and you set up bilateral meetings, 
and some of those went really well. And uh, getting to have a dairy farmer, especially someone with the with the hat of chair on, I think opened a lot of doors for us, and uh, was able to help the team at U.S. Deck uh, carry the message for what U.S. Dairy is doing. And, and I think what plays well in a format like that is uh, COP28 people, you know, for a variety of reasons, but are there looking for solutions. And U.S. Dairy in particular has a terrific number of proven solutions, progress we're already making. Uh, being a part of the world where we were kind of self-motivated, we knew our customers were, were moving this direction towards sustainability, and we knew it was in our wheelhouse. The U.S. farmer has been uh, doing more with less uh, since the since we started farming in this uh, great country, mm-hmm. and so that is the sustainability story. It's just a different vernacular than what uh, than what our farmers are used to. But all you have to do is translate it into the discussion of the day. And uh, you know, farmers farmers we only get paid when we find solutions, and so that's what we've been doing and demonstrating through partners. Uh, you know, whether it's uh, DMI and the checkoff or people up the chain like Nestle's or Starbucks that have have invested in some projects. Those are are terrific stories for what is happening at COP. And that kind of raises people's eyebrows because, you know, some of the areas they're in are more theoretical. Uh, So whenever you can bring a practical set of solutions and progress being made, uh, that really kind of turns heads, gets people's attention, and takes the heat off of agriculture, especially animal agriculture. And that was one of the goals, that people would see us as a solution and and not what we've been framed in, uh, you know, in the narrative kind of at large. But it's critical. Some of these countries, you know, are going to do what they want to do, and that's fine. But there's a lot mm-hmm. of countries around the world that look to COP and the UN system and say, hey, whatever they recommend, that's kind of where we're going to roll. So it's critical that we are getting our message out to the people making those decisions. And that's kind of what COP is all about. Well, I'm glad that you uh, you answered what was going to be my second question, as I know we'd heard uh, some different you know pushback from some countries and folks, but it sounds like, to your point, translating that message, uh, a lot of really great conversations and opening people's eyes to some of the great things we do uh, with animal agriculture and ag in general here in the U.S. So it sounds like it was a great time over at COP28. You mentioned, uh, you know, opening new markets and keeping new markets open. Uh, I want to turn our attention back here to North America to the uh, latest USMCA ruling on Canada's TRQs, Alex. I know uh, definitely not a win for the U.S. dairy industry. Where do we go from here in terms of our trade relationship with Canada on dairy? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, sometimes you're, your closest neighbors, you know, on the, on the other side of the fence are the ones that uh, you rely on the most, but the ones that can uh, really make things sticky the most. And that's kind of the relationship with Canada. And this this ruling, we were very disappointed uh, in how it turned out, you know, kind of kind of uh, catching a technicality and, and dismissing the whole thing. And And I think everybody realizes that that was not the tone and tenor of the USMCA, and that was not uh, the framework that that was agreed to. But uh, you know, they are going to keep looking for ways to to get around their obligations, and we're going to keep looking for ways to to kind of hold them to uh, what was agreed to. And so we, as far as next steps, you know, we've been really really happy with USDA and the US 
a trade representative's office on the work they've done uh, supporting us in this. And, and we're going to keep putting our heads together and try to find new ways to, uh, to address this. And, uh, but, you know, what, with your close neighbors who you're, you're tied at the hip with, uh, you know, you, you, you want to be very, very smart and, and uh, intelligent about how you handle things uh, because it, it is a terrific opportunity down the road. And obviously, this is a setback for, for our producers and, and processors of U.S. dairy products. And, you know, uh, equally kind of disappointing is, is the effect that it has on uh, the consumers in Canada, which are not, they're not in any different boat than a lot of the rest of the world where inflation is high and, and consumers are really pinched. And so to have, um, have you know, affordable and quality U.S. dairy products kind of being shunned away is, is, is not good for anybody. Well, we'll continue to watch how relations go between the U.S. and Canada on dairy. But what about other export markets? As we move into 2024, Alex, what are going to be some of the, the key markets that you and, and the folks there at the Dairy Export Council are going to be looking towards to try and bring U.S. dairy uh, a little bit more to some of these different export markets? Yeah, I think we touched on this a little bit last time, uh, Jesse, but Mexico has been uh, kind of phenomenal, especially in the cheese space this year. Uh, and, you know, as we talk about neighbors that are important to us, uh, kind of the other the other shoe, Mexico has been uh, really supportive and, and really important to the U.S. dairy market, and it absolutely will continue to be. Uh, but we're also looking to, to hopefully ease some of the headwinds that are they're coming across the world on the supply side. Um, you know, the Kiwis and the Europeans are, are moderating uh, their supply a little bit. And so we're, we're hoping to get to a little more of a balance in the market on the supply side. And on the demand side, I, I'm hoping, especially, you know, the news coming out last week uh, with, uh, with our interest rates, you hope that the economies around the world are starting to kind of get their head above water on, on inflation and on economic pressures and get people back to, to buying what they want to buy. Uh, which we always know is is high quality proteins and and high quality uh, tasting uh, high tasting products like U.S. dairy products, and so you know we're really looking for rebounds in kind of Japan and Korea and, and uh, Southeast Asia market, and uh, there's just a lot of markets around the world that are that are kind of just now getting their footing, and, and we hope to see that as we go into 2024. Well, Alex, we do appreciate the time. I know folks can stay up to date by going online to usdec.org. We've been talking with the new chair of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, Alex Peterson from Missouri. Alex, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us on AOA. We appreciate it. Thanks for the coverage. Merry Christmas. All right. Coming up next here on the program, we're going to talk fertilizer and a big deal announced this week in the fertilizer industry with Josh Linville from StoneX on the way next here on AOA. Do you know how much one stock of wheat is worth? Well, you're about to find out. Wheat is a member of the grass family that produces a dry, one-seeded fruit commonly called a kernel. There are about 1 million kernels of wheat in a bushel, about 50 kernels per stock, which if we do the math is about 20,000 stocks of wheat per bushel. That means that if a bushel is worth $8, then each stock is worth about 0.04 cents. So you would need 2,500 wheat stocks to equal $1. Now that one bushel of wheat will yield approximately 42 pounds of white flour or 60 pounds of whole wheat flour. A bushel of wheat makes about 42 pounds of 
with pasta or 210 servings of spaghetti. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. And in the United States, one acre of harvested land yields an average of around 45 to 50 bushels of wheat. So if you ever wondered how much one stock of wheat was worth, now you know. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Let's get a check of the market trade here on AOA for this Tuesday. I'm Jesse Allen. As we dive into what we're seeing in Tuesday's action, the grain markets have started off the day mostly to the downside. Soybeans were the downside leader in the overnight session and early on Tuesday. We did get a sale announcement to unknown destinations, 132,000 metric tons of beans for delivery. That could be China. We definitely need the U.S. Uh, definitely needs China to step up and buy more soybeans. Soybean crush margins, while down sharply from early in the year, still providing plenty of incentive to crushers. Traders are really watching the weather forecast in South America. That's the biggest of biggest news item in the market trade. The Euro model in particular is uh, looking pretty wet for Mato Grosso, Mato Grosso do Sol, and for much of the northern and northeastern areas of Brazil. Argentina continues to look pretty favorable. Corn production there is forecast to make a big jump in production compared to last year's drought-impacted crop. We're watching some of the shipping concerns as well with low water levels on the Panama Canal and then frequent missile and drone strikes threatening shipments through the Red Sea. That's translating to some lower interior prices for corn here in the U.S. The U.S. is the world's cheapest corn option, but rising cargo rates are an issue there. Managed money looks to be increasing their bearish bet on corn prices. Open interest jumped on Monday's sharp decline, suggesting that funds are getting even shorter in the corn market. We'll be watching cattle and hogs today as well as we uh, anticipate some positioning ahead of Friday's cattle on feed and quarterly hogs and pigs report. One has to wonder how exposed traders will leave themselves heading into that report and a three-day holiday weekend. In early trade, corn and wheat unchanged to about two lower. Soybeans, 10 to 15 cents lower, and cattle and hog trade is down unchanged to about 85 cents lower. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. In Iraq, our truck hit a roadside bomb. I had about 16 surgeries on my hand so that I could regain function. And when I came home, I needed a new roof due to a storm. And my electrical was deemed unsafe. And I was about to lose homeowner's insurance as well. I didn't really know where to go in order to get help. And so I applied for Operation Homefront Critical Financial Assistance Program. They've really been a blessing. Operation Homefront is a safety net. A lot of veterans, they fall through the cracks sometimes. And Operation Homefront, they catch us. It's been a blessing to us. It's a blessing to other veteran families. And it's good to know that when we come home, there are people who are there that care about us and want to see us do well and want to see us succeed. And we feel it and we appreciate that. I would say you guys are angels behind closed doors. Visit OperationHomefront.org to learn more. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. 
And thanks for sticking with us here on AOA, Agriculture of America, as we continue our program. And uh, I have to confess, I uh, I booked our next guest before we got some big headline news uh, in the fertilizer market yesterday. So I must have known that something was going to happen as we head towards the holidays. <laughs> Joining me now, VP of Fertilizer at StoneX, Josh Linville. Josh, thanks for being with me. And uh yeah, we got some big news uh, on the uh, fertilizer industry front yesterday. Uh, what a three point six billion dollar sale, Josh. Yeah. Um, so there was a uh, the the most recent new nitrogen production facility in the U.S. that was built, uh, Weaver, Iowa, and this thing was completed back in I think it was seventeen eighteen. Well, uh, somebody decided it was a good time to exit the market stage, right? And Coke had a few billion dollars laying around, needing to invest somewhere, so. Yeah, that news was announced yesterday. Three point six billion for that facility. It was a little bit of a shock. There had been rumors that uh, they were possibly looking at selling, but nobody knew they were quite that close. Well, this news definitely catching headlines for multiple reasons, but one reason I think in particular it caught your eye and mine is that we got a lot of talk about transparency in the fertilizer market here. Just last week, we saw the fertilizer transparency bill introduced in the Senate, you know, looking at a quote-unquote lack of competition. And here we are kind of, you know, consolidating competition in the fertilizer market. So, I mean, I think that's going to be a big talking point here moving forward as this deal gets vetted, Josh. Yeah, I think that, you know, last week we had that uh, that bill, Grassley and a couple other senators put that forward, and everybody's kind of like, okay, let's see what they do with this. Of course, you've got your naysayers saying, well, the government doesn't need to intervene, and others hopeful that something will come of it. But I don't think anybody dreamed it would be challenged quite this quickly, and that's going to be the big rally call, right? Everybody's going to say, this isn't fair. We, we are going to sit there and remove yet another competitor from the marketplace, and fertilizer's already one that is a monopoly, but it's controlled by relatively few parties. So yeah, we'll see what uh, see what the group does, if anything, with it. Every other one that has been merged, purchased, whatever the term they like to use, uh, has been greenlit very quickly. We'll see if it gets that same green light, or if there isn't a little bit of a flash in yellow on this one. Well, in terms of that bill uh, in the Senate, uh, it seems like D.C. Capitol Hills may be taking notice here finally of uh, all the volatility in this fertilizer market. Are you optimistic that that bill could? lead to something positive here in the in the fertilizer markets josh uh, unfortunately I, I hate to be a cynic but unfortunately no i don't think that it will uh on to start with when you sit there and look at where we are today versus where the prices were at their highest point which is march april of 2022 we're already down fairly significantly um you know you've got urea uan and hydrous potash are all down 60 to 65 percent from where they were uh phosphate hasn't done quite the work it's only about 42 and a half percent so a lot of the highest price situations are already behind us. The market has corrected. And the thing, I, there are a couple things I think that they could look at that could be interesting. Uh, the phosphate countervailing duty rates are still in place. Situations like this where monopolistic talks are going to be discussed. But overall, when you look at what's happened the last two, three, three and a half years, I mean, Jesse, how many times have we talked about it? I mean, most of these stories we're discussing, it's China. It's Russia, it's the Middle East, it's North Africa, it's Europe. It has nothing to do with the U.S. specific storyline. So what my fear is, we're going to get this attention, we're going to get all this work, we're going to get all this done, and they're just going to come back and say, oh, this is all an international situation, we can't stop that. 
Well, Josh, let's talk a, a little bit more about where the fertilizer markets stand currently. And I think as we near the end of the year, uh, watching logistics first, um, you know, we got a lot of talk of low water on the Panama Canal. We have issues in the Red Sea now. So some global factors there. We still got lower levels on the Mississippi River. I mean, talk to me about logistics. Are you concerned with uh, the current state of logistics, not only around the world, but here in North America? Uh, as far as around the world, fortunately, there always are alternate routes, right? You can go around the south tips. It's going to take a little bit longer, but ultimately you can find your way around the world if you've got the time to plan on it. Here to the U.S., actually, I'm in a better mood about it. When you look at the NOAA uh, river level map for the U.S., there's a lot of green out there. Now, if you go into individual points, you start looking at Memphis and different places like that. It is very close to dropping into that low water level. But it's been staying above. It's been staying green. And we continue to get decent little rain shots across the Midwest. And that's what we're going to need all the way through winter. We need these little shots of rain to kind of work its way down the river, keep flows back up at somewhat normal levels. It, it, it's a stopgap, right? We still need to get the snowpack. We still need to get a lot of rain up north, refill the tributaries. But so far, so good. I really hope that we can maintain this uh, this progress like we've been doing so far. Josh, let's talk about some of these markets uh, in particular. I know we watch nitrogen quite a bit. Uh, any news or notes on the on the nitrogen side here as we near the end of the year? No, it's actually gotten a little quiet. That's been nice. Uh, internationally, there's not been a whole lot of business that's really pressured the market one way or another. Uh, everything's just been very quiet. Everybody's just waiting for that next round of big demand. I, everybody's watching India. Uh, here domestically, um, Urea values have dropped down into very, very attractive levels when we look at it versus grains. UAN is pretty good. Um, and Hydra's fill and prepay programs for the spring have come out. They're going to be on the high side. We just had a tremendously large fall run. In fact, I think we just ran our demand models yesterday. According to our forecast for this fall, this will be the third biggest fall run that we've had for anhydrous starting back to 2000. So that's emptied the warehouses, uh, emptied the storage facilities. And the market is going to struggle to refill that system and get ready for springtime. So manufacturers came out with their program higher price than what we expected because supplies are tight. What about phosphate, potash, other uh, fertilizer inputs, any news notes there? Or is it quiet like uh, the rest of the marketplace? Quiet for the most part. Uh, phosphate prices are still high uh, when we compare it against historical values, when we compare it against grain values. I mean, any way you skin it, phosphate is high price and there's just no way around it. And I had been hopeful that we were going to see prices starting to dip down as we started to move into Q1, Q2. At least for Q1, that no longer looks like it's the case. You know, there's some global fears we might lose uh, Chinese exports like they've cut back on the urea exports. Uh, demand is still sufficient enough to make up for the lack of supply out there. And overall, we still have these countervailing duty rates in place. China, Russia, and Morocco, three of the largest exporting phosphate nations in the world, we still have duty rates against them. So it's very difficult for them to justify coming here. Now, we've seen tons come from around other places around the world, but the number of tons they can export drops way off after you get past those three. Uh, potash, really well priced. Uh, there's really no reason for that price to drop anytime soon. And in fact, we're kind of expecting that thing to start rallying a little bit. We are talking with the Vice President of Fertilizer at StoneX, Josh Linville, here today on AOA. Josh, I know it's uh, meeting season. It's getting towards the end of the year. A lot of folks are going to be looking at their books and uh, trying to figure things out, booking inputs for next year, et cetera. 
what are you hearing from customers as they attend the meetings around the countryside? Are they concerned about booking high input costs here right now? Are they trying to book input costs? I mean, what's kind of the word on the street right now, Josh? There's going to be a little bit more demand, and that's really going to pick up here this week, next week, uh, first week or two after the new year. we got a lot of prepaid money that's going to start flowing through that system as farmers try to spend on one side or the other of New Year's for tax purposes. And so we're really watching for that. And so far, I mean, the general sense has been urea, UAN, uh, potash are all fairly well. We're not seeing a lot of kickbacks as far as that goes. Now, we all know it could always be cheaper, right? But in terms of where the market is, where grain markets is, it's largely being accepted and said, hey, these are pretty good. Phosphate, there's a little bit of pushback. And hydrous, we're seeing quite a bit of pushback as far as where the programs were released. So it's going to be interesting to see how demand step forward with those. But yeah, like I said, it's a little bit of a mix. But overall, we're expecting things to pick up here in the next few weeks. We start seeing a little bit of international activity. We start to see those dollars flow through the U.S. system, and we'll see what happens. Any thoughts for folks uh, in terms of as they kind of sit down with a pencil and, and start to look at things here? I know the next couple of weeks, a lot of folks will do that uh, during the holidays as they have a little more time. I mean, any recommendations or just thoughts in general for folks to keep in mind right now as they're looking at fertilizer? I still, you know, I'm a big advocate for if we're going to lock up that fertilizer, look at selling some of that grain against it. Um, one of my big fears is that we're going to look at the fertilizer markets and say, yeah, they're decent, but I'll go ahead and buy some of the fertilizer, but I'm not going to do anything on the grain because we all think grain is always up and to the right. You know, if we just wait a little bit longer, that price is going to come back. But what happens to that purchase of fertilizer if we do start seeing grain prices drop? Let's say Brazil has a better situation than we think, or we start to have more acres expected for next year. And December 24 has been holding in with a five handle for quite a while. If that starts dipping into four, the whole outlook changes. So, again, we're always talking about the value of it. It's the input and the output side. Um, just doing one side or the other is just speculation. If we're looking at doing the input side, let's look at a little bit of the output, lock in that value for next year. And when you look at urea, UAN potash, you know, if that turns out to be the worst value you lock up next year, that's good. I, I come back and yell at me because that means you've had a very, very good year. Well, good thoughts to consider, of course, and uh, we do appreciate the time and the insight. Josh, uh, got just a, a minute here before we wrap it up. Uh, I should ask, uh, with it being the Christmas season and the holidays, got a favorite Christmas cookie by chance? So we've got a really, really good cookie shop uh, bakery here in Kansas City and uh, had to go pick up a, <laughs> uh, a sleeve of uh, snickerdoodles, which is not going well because I've got a marathon in two weeks and I am tearing through this sleeve <laughs> like it's nothing else. <laughs> I know my wife was uh, doing a lot of baking around the house last night, and I, I got a feeling I'm going to add about five or 10 pounds here over the next week <laughs> with all the uh, cookies and everything else uh, being uh, made around our home. But uh, just, well, just tell, her, tell her, tell her what I tell my wife. That just means there's more of me to love. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I appreciate you answering the hard-hitting question there last. And uh, Josh, as always, thanks for joining us on the program. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. We will talk to you in 2024. You as well. Josh Linville, VP of Fertilizer with Stonex, joining us on AOA. All right, coming up next, we'll take a look at news headlines before we wrap up the program. Back with more on the way right after the break. Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting. 
a teenager. Learning the lingo. Today, I'm going to help parents translate teen slang. Now, when a teen says something is on fleek, it's exactly like saying, that's rad. It simply means that something is awesome or cool. Another one is totes. It's exactly like saying, totally, just shorter. As in, I totes love going to the mall with Becca. Another word you might hear is jelly. Jelly is a shorter, better way to say jealous. As in, Chloe, I am like so jelly of your unicorn phone case. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will think you're, um, rad just the same. To learn more, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Teachers are dynamic leaders, shaping a new generation. They bring a variety of perspectives from diverse backgrounds, innovating how they teach to prepare students for our fast-changing world. Achieving this takes skill and expertise. They're tireless explorers, creatively discovering a universe of solutions, telling stories, experimenting, inspiring, mentoring, connecting cultures, and connecting with each other. Leading by example. Experience the unique joy of helping students thrive. Teaching is a journey that shapes lives. Are you ready to begin? Explore teaching at teach.org. A campaign supported by the U.S. Department of Education, teach.org, and one million teachers of color. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Lauren Bucci, a talent acquisition manager with CHS, about employment and internship opportunities in agriculture. Lauren, what career opportunities are available in agriculture and what skills are important to possess? There are really no shortage of opportunities available in the agriculture industry. And here at CHS, opportunities span across a number of different teams and divisions. We have opportunities that support operations in the field, such as working with farmers and growers, roles that support our refineries. And we have countless opportunities at our headquarters here in Invergrove Heights, Minnesota. Those include supply chain, finance, IT, and human resources, just to name a few. In terms of skills that we would look for for future employees, we certainly are looking for someone that has a passion for what it is that they do. But we're also looking for individuals that embody our values of integrity, safety, inclusion, as well as cooperative spirit. Now, is a farming background critical for careers in agriculture? It is not required to have a background in farming. However, many of our roles may look for previous experience in agronomy or related fields, but we have a lot of opportunities across other teams where they're not directly related to farming. I would say as someone myself who does not come from a farming background, I can say with experience that it's a very welcoming industry. What internship opportunities are available at CHS? If there's a full-time opportunity that we offer, there's probably a related internship that you could secure as well. Where can we learn more about internships and career opportunities at CHS? Our career site is going to be the best place to go. If you visit jobs.chsinc.com, you can learn everything that you want to know about both full-time and internship opportunities. Thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. Non-attorney paid spokesperson. 
Could your house go into foreclosure? Are you behind on your mortgage payments? Does it seem like the bank has no interest in helping you save your home and you feel like you have nowhere to turn for help? Then we have good news for you. Foreclosure Protection Services can help save your home as they specialize in foreclosure assistance. That's all they do. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, being threatened with foreclosure, have been denied a loan modification, or been the victim of a predatory loan, it's critical that you call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. Their network of attorneys and their agents are available to speak to you now. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, Foreclosure Protection Services can help stop the foreclosure process. Call today before it's too late. New laws are in effect that may save your home. Call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. 800-926-1701. That's 800-926-1701. Information America's farmers and ranchers need. AOA. Now, back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA. Thanks for joining us here today. Jesse Allen back with you. Let's take a look at some news headlines before we wrap up our program. Well, sustainable aviation fuel, of course, just got a huge boost from the Treasury Department that could clear a major new court ethanol market for takeoff. Treasury's new tax guidance could create a 36 billion gallon market for sustainable aviation fuel made with biofuels like corn ethanol. Renewable Fuels Association head Jeff Cooper says the Treasury's accepted a key modeling tool to measure carbon intensity and eligibility for a make or break tax credit. We were looking for inclusion of the Department of Energy's GREET model in this guidance and we were happy to see that it is in fact listed as an approved methodology for doing that analysis. The news follows Follows Virgin Atlantic's first ever 100% SAF transatlantic test flight from London to New York. Cooper says Treasury must still work out the details, but he's hopeful about revisions expected by next March. We are cautiously optimistic. We're hopeful that this guidance today is what will open the door to this opportunity for America's ethanol producers and, and farmers and airlines to really jump into the aviation fuel marketplace. The COP28 climate summit in Dubai agreed to triple the use of renewable fuels by 2030 and phase out fossil fuels by 2050. That is to keep the global average temperature from hitting a critical climate-changing benchmark. Well, dairy farmers Alex Peterson of Missouri and Becky Nyman of California have been elected to guide the U.S. Dairy Export Council as its chair and vice chair, respectively. The vote came in a December 13th meeting of USDEC's board of directors. Now, Krista Harden, the U.S. Dairy Export Council president and CEO, says, quote, I am delighted and thrilled to have such bright and capable leaders to guide us at this pivotal time. As we look to the future, this is the right team to help the U.S. dairy industry continue to grow exports, end quote. Now, Peterson and Nyman share similar personal stories. Both left budding careers to return home to work on their family-owned dairy farms, and both have given their time and energy to serve the broader U.S. dairy industry in multiple leadership positions. Now, back in August, Peterson was named as the interim chair of the Dairy Export Council, stepping in for Larry Hancock, who had served four years in that role. Peterson says, quote, my job as U.S. Dairy Export Council chair is to bring fresh, innovative solutions to life and help solve some of the most pressing challenges the global dairy industry faces today. Ultimately, my goal is to advocate for U.S. dairy farmers on the international stage, making it as simple as possible for U.S. dairy exporters to establish footholds in new regions, develop their business and meet the rising demand for dairy across the globe, end quote. 
Again, congratulations to Alex Peterson of Missouri and Becky Nyman of California being elected to lead the U.S. Dairy Export Council as its chair and vice chair, respectively. Well, U.S. pork saw another great month in exports, according to the latest data for the month of October from the USDA. Kelly Wicks, manager of international market development for the National Pork Board, said that Mexico continues to be a showcase that was highlighted in the data from USMEF. Monster year that's continued for Mexico. It's just really exciting to continue to see that market still grow. And so just the diversification and differentiation that's going on in that market with our partner, U.S. Meat Export Federation, is fabulous. And you can see that in the numbers. October pork exports totaled 245,345 metric tons, which is up 3% year over year. When we look at a volume increase compared to last year, value increase, we're up 6%, 9% in volume. So just having that increase is really Great to see, especially when it's a tough time domestically for our pork producers. So to know that our export markets are strong is really great to be able to communicate. Wicks said producers need to look at the production that is going to exports as a big win. That is 28.2% for the January through October. So that's a really strong number. And it's up from your prior months that we've seen. And so it's really bringing back that value. And $60.21 per head is going back to that hog that's slaughtered coming from those export markets. These wins and exports is an example of why the pork checkoff invests in the USMEF as a strategic partner, bringing more value through diversification, differentiation, and defending the product. That investment includes South America with increased shipments to Guatemala, the Dominican Republic, South Korea, and Australia. You can find the full USMEF press release and other year-to-date information at porkcheckoff.org. Well, external parasites in your dairy herd could turn shiny coats into tattered ones and reduce the comfort, efficiency, and performance of the herd. Dr. Jennifer Roberts, professional services veterinarian with Beringer Ingelheim, talks about what types of parasites can be a challenge for dairy producers. Lice are typically going to be found around the neck, shoulders, or back of cattle. And there's a couple different kinds. We have biting lice and sucking lice. Those can be a real challenge because the cows get very itchy from it and can be uncomfortable. The other parasites that we worry about are mange mite. The most common ones that we see are the ones that live around the tail head and the hindquarters of the animal. Coreoptic mange is that classic tail head mange that we think of when we start to see those crusts and scabs around the tail head of the cows. There's another type of mange called sarcoptic mange, and this can cause more severe lesions than the mange mites, the coreoptic mange mites do. But the big concern with sarcoptic mange is that it's transmissible to humans. She talks about why external parasites are a concern, especially in the winter. And anything that impacts cow comfort is going to have an impact on, on their production in the herd. So cows that are spending a lot of time itching and trying to compensate for parasite infestations, they're going to be spending less time lying down, less time ruminating, and less time making milk. And so a comfortable cow is going to be a productive cow. Monitoring for external parasites starts with observation. We want to look for those visible signs, so the crusts and scabs around the tailhead area, any areas of hair loss. Sometimes we'll also see the cows may be exhibiting signs of trying to itch themselves by licking the hair in the opposite direction. These are really helpful visible cues, but they're not always 100%. It's important to involve your veterinarian if you think you may have parasite in the herd. And Roberts talks about best practices when putting together a treatment plan. 
some farms will treat the whole herd once a year. And typically we're going to do this in the fall because as we have less day length and less exposure to sunlight and the cow's hair starts to get a little bit longer in the winter time to compensate for cooler temperatures, we do see an increase in parasite infestations. Other farms will treat at certain stages of production. So they will be pouring cows with a topical dewormer and antiparasiticide year round. It's really important to work with a veterinarian to determine what's going to be the right approach for each individual herd. Once again, that's Dr. Jennifer Roberts from Beringer Ingelheim. We're out of time on AOA. Coming up tomorrow, we'll talk with Jackie Vacca from AgriPulse. Marsha Bunger, RMA administrator, will join us. And we'll also talk cotton and wheat markets with Donna Hughes from StoneX. Have a great rest of your day. I'm Jesse Allen. Thanks for listening to AOA. Every day, our brave military men and women, along with their families, make tremendous sacrifices for our freedom. Patriotic Hearts, a nonprofit organization, is dedicated to supporting these heroes and their families in their times of need. By donating your unwanted car to Patriotic Hearts, you'll be supporting job transition and job fair programs, veteran entrepreneurship, counseling, and retreats for combat veterans and their spouses. Call 800-560-3870. You'll receive a tax deduction and we'll arrange a free pickup at your convenience. Imagine the difference you can make in the lives of those who have given so much for our country. Your car donation will directly impact military families, veterans, providing them with the support they desperately need. Call 800-560-3870. You can become a part of something bigger. Join us in our mission to uplift and honor our military community. Call 800-560-3870 to donate your unwanted card. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C-section, when dad injured his back, when your basketball star tore his ACL, Opioids helped with the pain, and you held on to them, just in case. But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Opioids are powerful pain-reducing prescription medicines, but most people who are prescribed opioids don't finish their prescriptions. So millions of unused opioids are sitting at homes across the country, and tragically, more than 100 Americans die every day from overdoses involving opioids. What can you do to protect your family? Remove the risk of unused opioids from your home. Pills, patches, or syrups in drawers, purses, and cabinets, anywhere they might be hiding. To find out how to dispose of them properly, visit www.fda.gov drugdisposal drug disposal.